Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, glad to have you with us. Thanks for listening. This is episode number 53 of The Next Track. Today we have as a guest via Skype, author and Dylanologist Andrew Muir. Andrew, it's great to meet you. No, thanks very much for having me. It's good to be here. I got in touch with Andrew a few weeks ago. Someone on Facebook put me in touch with Andrew because he and I have two shared interests, one of them being Bob Dylan and the other being William Shakespeare. Unfortunately, we can only talk about one of them on this show. And the timing of this is perfect because both Andrew and I saw Bob Dylan live in the past week. I saw the May 4th concert in Bournemouth, which is on the south coast of the UK. And Andrew saw him in Glasgow, was it, on the 7th? Yeah, I did. But I also saw him the first two shows in the Palladium, April the 30th and the next night. So I saw the Friday and Saturday in London Palladium and then the Glasgow show the Sunday the 7th. Well, you know, I'm in Stratford-upon-Avon, so for me it was finding something that's within driving distance. In the 2015 tour, we went down to Cardiff, which really isn't a very nice place to see a concert. That hall is just a big box. And so I figured, okay, Bournemouth looks more interesting. It's a bit smaller. It is more like a theater. I was disappointed that the sound wasn't very good. It was overly loud, but I thought the show was excellent other than that. I don't know about you, but I had front row tickets. Well, I'm, I'm not that obsessive. I was quite a few rows back, you know, so. Um, but can I just add, I'm just going to say you were front row tickets and you found the sound bad because a number of people have said that. So uh, I, it was a little bit loud for me, a, a couple of bits, like the second half of Pay and Blood, for example. But overall, it was actually very good for me. But I, I have talked to quite a number of people at a number of shows and those right at the front uh, got punished for their uh, for their good seats by apparently finding it all too loud. So that it would be interesting to know. I do suspect, though, that, uh, you know, I, I was, well, not lucky, I picked the venues, but the venues I were at had a better sound. I, I would struggle to think the sound could be good in Cardiff or the Wembley Arena, though I did read a, re a review of Wembley Arena this morning that praised the sound. Which... I, I did too, but then I read a second review of the show last night that said the sound was horrible. So I think it really depends on where the people were sitting. Exactly. You know, be, being that close, and, and for both of these shows, we were on the piano side, so as close to him as possible. I can imagine people in the front row far on the left, they wouldn't even see him behind the piano. No, I mean, when I saw him, especially the first night in London, he did a tremendous amount of walking around, very amusing, very eccentric walking around. It, it actually got less uh, even by the next night, and it was a lot less by the time of Glasgow. But people who, who had the problem you're saying, especially because there's the four mics he doesn't use covering his face when he does move center stage, at least they saw him walking around. Uh, so they would have got him, and he picked, you know, he picks up the microphone and he stands center stage, and then he, then he walks away over to a wall as though there's a magic door in the wall that's going to open and let him out changes his mind at the last minute and looks for a harmonica that isn't there, then wanders back. Well, those people got to see him then, which I think was quite good. Yeah. What did you like at Bournemouth? Did he do a lot of walking around the stage? No, he didn't. He would. He played a lot standing up at the piano. He'd walk to the center when he was doing the Frank Sinatra type songs, and he'd walk back to the piano for most of the rest. He didn't. He wasn't very mobile. He would walk back sort of after a song. He'd walk back to the stage to talk to Donnie Heron, and they'd have a laugh about something, and then he'd come back. But he wasn't moving a lot. And I remember the 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 Cardiff show. He was visibly limping in 2015. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I you're slightly worried the way you say it now because it, do, it does. Maybe it was a deliberate move, you know, and, and not enforced upon him. But it was very funny at the at the April the 30th gig. Or I thought it was very funny because. I was watching him at the piano and he was uh, building up to Tangled Up in Blue, though the moment I'm talking about, you didn't really know what was happening. 
Uh, and he seemed to forget that you can see through the bottom of a piano because he was doing warm-up leg exercises, like somebody about to do yoga for the first time in years or something. So of course, I just I just found this you know totally Dylan and, and, and amusing. I was watching him doing this, and then he went for this really long, elaborate walk around at the beginning of a of an instrumental into Tangled Up in Blue, and I think it was the third verse before he got back to the piano. And he was wandering around, and you, people call it Chaplin-esque, well, in the past. It wasn't Chaplin-esque this time. I, I don't actually know a word for it, apart from obviously Dylan-esque, but he was wandering in a, in, in a way I've never seen anybody walk like this, and he, he was looking around the stage for things that weren't there, and as I say, uh, as though he was about to walk through a door that wasn't there. And then he was striking um, really uh, extravagant poses. And he got he got fantastic cheers for this. He would give this look to the audience and he would get an ovation. Uh, and then yeah. it was a very good tangled up in blue as well. Yeah. Uh, but, you, but obviously it changed as time went on because I, I did, again, read uh, one of the reviews of, um, of must have been last night or, or the Liverpool show, perhaps where he clearly wasn't doing the same. And by the time in Glasgow, he was walking less, but to make up for it, he was changing his hat a lot more. So he'd take the hat off for a song and put it on for the next one. That's, you know, here, here we're going into total Dylanology, right? Talking about all these little details. But I did notice that at Bournemouth, he took his hat off a, a number of times. And I don't remember the previous time him taking his hat off at all. Just an aside, I really like those hats. I don't know if I could pull it off, but I like that hat. I think it's very cool. We're straying into a fashion show here, aren't we? <laughs> for those who don't know about Dylan's hat, I'll put a photo in the show notes from from one of the the concerts in this tour he wears i think it's generally called a gambler's hat it's a sort of round flat hat with a curved brim it's quite attractive but let's move on to more interesting things <laughs> so we were just to warm up before the show we were talking a little bit about what's called the never-ending tour and the reason i wanted to invite you is because you've written a book called one more night bob dylan's never-ending tour you wrote this a few years ago and you said just before the show that for about 25 years on this never-ending tour, he was changing his set list every night. And now for the past few years, his set list is relatively stable. I noticed in, in the UK tour, there were maybe a half a dozen songs that came in and out of the set list. But for the most part, he does 21 songs pretty much in every show for, for years. And it's like 17 of the songs are the same. And then there's a couple that change here and there. How did the never-ending tour start? This goes back to a specific concert 30 years ago, was it? That's right, yeah, the 30th year this year, yes. Yeah, so so 19, uh, uh, 1987 is when Dylan said he had the inspiration. Uh, yeah, just to say that exactly what you said about the, the set list. My book, actually, the last shows it does are 2011, um, which I did like, but I hadn't actually liked the, the previous decade nearly as much as the... the uh, well, all my life before that, but for the never-ending tour, the 20 years before that. So it's rather galling for me that each year I've seen them since the book uh, finished, I've actually enjoyed the shows more, and it would have been, would have been a really rousing conclusion. Uh, but not every Dylan fans agrees, because lots of people, as I did, lo loved the fact that you could go and not know what was happening next. So just right. to put in context what you said, I went on the Friday, last Friday, Friday before last, to the Palladium. Then I went on the Saturday, and it was the same set list. That never used to happen. Uh, and yeah. Actually, well, maybe it occasionally did, but only only on paper, because what he would also do is he would change the arrangement. So if if you saw um, a, a song one night, like I don't know, let's pick a folk song, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right, you'd see it as a folk song. If you went the, say, the next night and it was in the same place in the set list, he might play it as a country song or a blues yeah. tune song. So it always felt different anyway. So um, maybe we come back to this later, but th there is a big split amongst Dylan fans over the fact that it's now what they call, with capital letters, the set, because yeah. they're, they're, they're upset it doesn't change. 
but the original yeah. idea to to go back to the <clears throat> the foundation of the never-ending tour as it were as it were <clears throat> we're saying this is the 30th year of it well, well bob's actually been touring non-stop since 1986 but in 1986 he toured with the tom petty and heartbreakers band um backing him uh and and lots of uh, girl singers as well so the stage was very very full it was you know it, it was uh, it was a busy stage uh, and in 87, he did the same, though a very different approach to the sets uh, and, and his performance and indeed his appearance. He looked rather worryingly ill in 1987. Actually, I'll be honest with you, when I saw him in 1987, I didn't think I'd see him again um, after maybe two or three years. And here we are all these years later uh, because he reinvented himself. And as um, you're possibly aware, and I'm sure many listeners will be aware, uh, Dylan himself in Chronicles, his memoir, Chronicles Volume 1. Chronicles Volume 1, yes. But I think that's a bit like Travelling Wilbury's Volume 2. You know, it <laughs> never came out either. Just jumped to Volume 3. But yes, Chronicles Volume 1. Uh, a, a memoir, some people call it an autobiography, which would be amazing because it doesn't have a single date in it. Um, yeah. but, but never mind. Um, it, what he says about it, I think, is, is, is something he said many times before. And I think it's true in, in a general sense. I'm not sure specifically he gets the right concert. But he says that he was in Switzerland uh, when he had he was surrounded by all these people on stage and he looked out at the audience. He didn't know what he was singing. Um, and I believe uh, I believe Kirk, you're a bit of a Grateful Dead fan. So he actually credits the Grateful Dead for uh, making him realize what touring really was. Because in between the Tom Petty tours, he'd also played with the Grateful Dead. Right. They they played a series of shows together. And the the Dead, from, from all the reports, the Grateful Dead were actually more excited about these shows than Dylan himself. But Bob Dylan wasn't particularly in a, a great place at the time. No, he wasn't. And the performances are lackadaisical. And there's an album released called Dylan and the Dead, which has some good songs, but it's really not an essential Dylan album or an essential Grateful Dead album. Uh, no, I agree. So you could have made something of it, but I think it's very important that they came in between the Tom Petty things because, as we say, Bob himself says that he was uh, he, he'd lost connection with all of his own old songs. Uh, he said that he used to look at the Grateful Dead and they were getting something out of the songs, and, and to him it was just a. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm quoting here. It might be a slight paraphrase given my age, but he says something like, "It just seemed to me like a bunch of surrealist nonsense," um, and he couldn't connect to them at all. Uh, so um, he continues back uh, touring with the uh, Tom Petty, going around Europe and, and Israel, and he's in Switzerland, and he has what he calls an epiphany. And what happens is he looks out to the crowd, and they're looking at the backup singers. And as he says, they're all good-looking girls. Another Bob thing to say. Uh, yes. But they weren't looking at him. Uh, and he, he was wondering what, you know, what he was doing with his life, and uh, he, he says it much better than me. So to cut a long story short, he has this epiphany, that uh, he should be out touring, he should be connecting with his old songs, and this is what he was put on the planet to do, and from now on he was going to do it. He was going to make his stand and do it. And then, uh, 1988, you've got the never-ending tour, which has continued to this date. But the important thing is, when the never-ending tour, as we call it, because uh, remember, there's not been a break. He toured in 86 and 87 as well. But when yeah. he hit the stage in June in 1988, it was with a stripped-down rock and roll, rockabilly-type band, G. Smith on guitar. It was a short set, which upset many people wrongly, I think. It was an hour and 10 minutes, but it was an hour and 10 minutes of absolute quality. And I, I have to say, I would rather have that than three hours of non-quality. Yeah. Uh, and high energy, it was rock and roll. He played songs he hadn't played for a very long time. And uh, this is why even I have to um, credit the Grateful Dead, because uh, a lot of them were in those rehearsals you just spoke of. You know, so he opened with some yeah. Homesick Blues, which at the time was astonishing. But the whole sets were astonishing, and there were, were great acoustic sets in the middle. So 
It's the only um, uh, it's the only year of the never-ending tour I've not seen, and it's my favourite year. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you mentioned that it was a stripped-down band, and, and just before the show we were talking about the current band, and, and you, you have to say about Bob Dylan, first of all, Bob Dylan does not advertise this as a concert with Bob Dylan. He advertises it as a concert with Bob Dylan and his band. So he gives credit to the band. And, and rightly so. They're amazingly tight. They're amazingly, they're extraordinary musicians. As you say, he can change the style of a song and the band follows him, you know, from one night to the next in, in the arrangements and all that. I, I believe Tony Garnier is the band leader. You were telling us before the show, he's been with Bob since what, the 80s? Yeah, yeah. He, he just, um, from 89, my memory's going a little bit, but it was around about 89, 90. Um, uh, he, he's, been, he's been there all the time and uh, he, he, I think he sort of tells people what to do but, but as you also say all of the band now have been there for years uh, Charlie Sexton's been there twice they all, they all know exactly what, what, what Bob's like and what Bob might do and he will try and throw a curveball now and again but going back to what we said earlier the fact that the set list isn't changing as much uh, and that the for example I saw a live debut in Glasgow but it was from the, the last album Triplicate so, so the band all know it the, the, the band not only are tight and no Bob being Bob, but they don't have these wild leaps that he used to do. So I, I think they're incredibly tight, to use the word you used. And I, I love the way they move from style to style. So you can get a, a fairly hard um, song like Pay and Blood and you can follow it with a very soft crooning Sinatra type sound. And the band don't seem to blink or miss a beat. They just move from one thing to the other. They're, they're, they're a well-oiled machine. Again, I must say, because we were just talking about the never-ending tour, you know, uh, this the, the first the first band I think were fantastic with G. E. Smith as lead guitarist and he left in 1990. Uh, so so a long period after that there was chopping and changing and, uh, and and Bob was chopping and changing the set list and the style as well. And it, it, well oiled machine were not words that would have leapt to one's lips. But yeah. so I love I've loved them both for very different reasons. But there, there, I think there is a comfort in going in and knowing that you're going to have such a high level of musicianship. You know, it, it really was striking. And again, you know, the, the non-changing set list might help this. You know, Bob's getting on. He's, he's, he's 76 soon. And yep. uh, I, I don't know what your memory's like, but I couldn't change song every night and have any idea what the <laughs> heck I was singing. <laughs> and even some of the band members must be quite pleased that they're playing the same thing as the night before. I noticed that Donnie Heron had an iPad on a stand in front of him. So he obviously has some sort of charts in front of him for what he's playing. But Dylan doesn't have anything with lyrics. I mean, I could see there was nothing hidden in the piano for him to be reading the lyrics. So he is remembering them. He, sorry, he has had in recent years, you know, at times he has had lyrics on stage. Uh, and okay. not surprisingly, I'm not, uh, I'm not, it's not yeah. criticism at all. Um, but yes, uh, you know, if you imagine if he was changing, I don't know, nine of the 21 songs three or four times in a week, it's going to be taxing, I, well, I would think. But, you know, if he loses where he is, he can just sort of do a growl and everybody's trying to work out what the heck he's saying. <laughs> he's not actually saying anything. <laughs> so when, when you look at the set list, just before we, we connected on Skype, Doug and I were talking and I was saying it's about one third old songs. So 65, 66, up to Tangled Up in Blue, 1974. It's about one third songs from, what, 97 and, and later with Things Have Changed, which he opens with. And then uh, songs from Beyond Here Lies Nothing, Modern Times, and uh, and Tempest. And then it's about one third of these sort of Frank Sinatra songs, for want of a better word. They're not all Frank Sinatra songs. And and it's interesting the way he shifts from these uh, through these three different styles, through stylistically a, a song like Things Have Changed, which 
Interestingly, so this starts with Stu Kimball coming out on acoustic guitar and playing a sort of instrumental ditty for a few verses. And then the band comes into it. And this song rocks. It's a really heavy song. And then a couple songs later, he's doing Melancholy Mood, standing in the center with his microphone like a crooner. And then he's doing Tangled Up in Blue, and he's doing Ballad of a Thin Man to Close, which rocks again. There's a big change in mood from the, the very active songs to the much quieter crooning songs. No, I agree. I, I think it's very carefully paced. Uh, I also think it's very funny that he opens with things have changed now that they don't. You know, so yeah. For all those years, things <laughs> did change and he didn't tell us. It's a, it's, it's, it's a very Dylan thing you know, to do. It, it's like when people said to him, you know, why haven't you commented on, on winning the Nobel and he said, well, it left me speechless. I thought that was, you know. <laughs> yes, Dylan's speechless is interesting, yeah. That's why I have not said anything. Um, no, you're right. So if, if we take the heavy ones, you've got things have changed, which certainly wakens everybody up uh, to start us off. You've got other big, heavy uh, sort of centerpieces like Pay in Blood, Lovesick, Desolation Roll, which, which was my favorite all the way through. But that wasn't, that wasn't a heavy song. That was... No, no, but that... in, in, in atmosphere, in... in um, okay, It wasn't right. heavy, it was a piano. It was, it was, it was a sort of centerpiece, as it were. Yeah. Uh, no, not heavy in the way Ballad of a Thin Man was. You know, that, that, that had right. a nice vitriolic sneer at times. It was, uh, it, it, it was, it was really quite good. But if we, if we take those as spacing, we then fit around them the... We'll call them, just for shorthand sake, the Sinatra songs, OK? We know yeah. they've been covered by Billie Holiday and Nella and, and everybody else. Uh, they are standards, but connected to Sinatra. Uh, we've got those, and we've also got the Tempest songs, which you were mentioning there. So, so you mentioned since 97, but, you know, you've got Things Have Changed, you've got one from Together Through Life, Beyond Here yeah. Lies Nothing, and you've got one from Modern Times, uh, Spirit on the Water. But you've got this huge chunk of Tempest songs, Pay in Blood, Early Roman Kings, um, Long and Wasted Years. Duquesne Whistle. Yeah. And we missed one, Soon After Midnight. Yeah. Okay. The Soon After Midnight and especially Long and Wasted Years, if you go back to 2013, 2015, they were, they were more centerpiece songs. I, 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 they're two of my favorite songs on the album, so I'm very pleased they're still there. Yeah. They, they, they've moved in the set from a position of prominence. Um, but I actually thought Early Roman Kings, which is... Possibly my least favorite on the album. It doesn't do that much for me on the album. I thought it was really very strong, and Duquesne Whistle yeah. was good fun. So I really liked the Tempest song. So I see, I see the Tempest as being a, a, a big, a big block of it, if you were. And through yeah. that, as you say, you've got these uh, crooning, more melancholy songs. Uh, though soon after midnight, although it's uh, a Dylan song, is also um, sort of croony. You, you yeah. Can say. But yeah, I think it's very deliberately paced, and I think it's paced. Uh, Sorry to go on about this, but I think it's paced very much like he used to pace his albums with a lot of thought. You know, I've, I've always thought, I'm not the only one that thinks this, and I'm certainly not the first to say it, but Dylan was very much a vinyl artist. He, he, he scheduled his albums very much with the idea of somebody sitting down, listening to side one, turning it over and listening to side two. And when it went away and we, we moved on to CD, I, he got lost for a little bit, I think. And lots of people, myself included, uh, have bemoaned the fact that Dylan left some of his greatest songs off albums. Blind Willie McTell is like the best song he he recorded in the 1980s for the Infidel session, and he didn't put it on an album. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, if you look at the, the album before that as, as well, Shot of Love, the that could have been an... Well, both of those albums could have been absolute masterpieces, and he didn't put the best songs on, on either of them, uh, with, with the exception of Every Grain of Sand and, and Shot of Love. But Dylan's actually done similar things throughout his career. Those ones, it's difficult to talk about them all at once. I, Blind Willie McTell, I, I just can't fathom. Grail Marcus says he didn't put it on because it would have been so much better than everything else on the album. 
uh, <laughs> that he would have made the rest of the album look bad. Now, you know, that, that, is, that is a fair point, because I, I can't really work that one out any other way, uh, other than Dylan just being Dylan. But, but many of the choices in the past, especially in the 60s, when he had, you know, he was, he was writing so much stuff. I mean, he was, he was in the albums we were talking about, too. He had so many choices, and you think, well, why didn't he put this on? But it was to do with sequencing, I think. It was to do with pacing. Yeah. So, so, you know, I mean, even the classic albums have got, you know, almost throwaway songs, if I could possibly say that about Dylan in the 60s. But, you know, if you can listen to Bringing It All Back Home, there is the, the um, non-acoustic side, because it's sort of half electric, uh, there's a deliberate pacing to it. And there's a deliberate pacing to, to lots of things that he does. And I think he's structured the show that way. Again, going back to the fact that it's a, a, a non-changing set list, I think that allows him to do it. So I think it's very carefully controlled. But you're quite right. If you were to draw a graph of our emotions via the songs, it would be very, very interesting. You've got three major sections, I think, being The Tempest, The Sinatra, uh, and all the others, the three blocks that interchange all their way through. And I think it's very interesting. that The songs talk to each other as well, I think, deliberately. They do. And it's interesting, in 2015, I don't remember the exact set list, but I don't believe that both of the encores were old songs. But on this tour, the two encores are Blowing in the Wind and Ballad of a Thin Man which is really, he starts with Things Have Changed and then he goes back to his really earliest albums. And Blowing in the Wind, arguably one of his best-known songs, Ballad of a Thin Man is not a popular hit. It wasn't covered by a hundred different bands. But I think it's a really fitting song to end a concert. It's just that the the lyrics of that song are very, very percussive. I don't think it was that different in 2015, by the way. I'm pretty sure it was Blowing in the Wind as the, the, the one of two encores then as well. But but moving on, moving on to... Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's written on the set list as uh, Do You, Mr. Jones. And I think I think actually the, the catchphrase is quite well known, whether, whether the song's been covered that much or not. But I, I do totally agree with you with percussive. And I do think it's a fantastic way to, uh, to end the show. I actually got tickets for... Um, uh, uh, two ladies uh, from Brazil in 2015 who'd liked Bob all, all their life, I mean, a much younger life than mine, so they'd never actually seen him live and they didn't know he'd played Blowing in the Wind so you have to, you have to also take into account um, that we're talking here as people who sort of follow music and listen to bootlegs right. a Dylan show is still quite a challenge for somebody else, just before I, you, you, you uh, phoned me I was actually looking at my email, and I got an email from uh, somebody last night who'd seen their first Dylan show, and they didn't know he played Blowing in the Wind either. Um, that makes it even funnier to me that the next song is Something's Happening Here and You Don't Know What It Is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> my partner is not a Bob Dylan fan. She's not really a music fan either. She accompanies me because, you know, we, we share this. And she said to me after the concert, it was good, but everyone knows the words, and I was really struggling to hear what he was saying. And, and in a way, you just have to give up. You just have to... If you go in with that, and I'm, I'm not uh, criticising those people, and I'm not saying they shouldn't have the show they want either, but it's not the show you're going to get. And he's been touring for so long, you feel like people, people almost should know. I'm not saying they should. But I find this, um, and this I go into this quite in some detail in the book. For example, pick a year like 1994, when I was went to see him in Europe and America, travelling around, and I knew um, kind of how he was. Then I'd go to, let's say somewhere in Germany, there was a festival or France, there was a festival, and you saw these people coming for a festival, and there were five or six acts, and Bob was the headline, usually, uh, for obvious reasons. And he came on, and there was a big crowd, and after about two songs, most of them had gone home, and just the same people had seen him the night before, because they just had no idea what he was doing. And it, it isn't the normal experience. And, you know, I was, uh, I, I was saying the sound was very good, but I was straining to hear the lyric changes in Tangled Up in Blue. 
I yeah. was really concentrating. Uh, and you'd think after all these years, I'd be very used to his voice, but it still was quite difficult, even though the sound was good and, uh, you know, uh, I, I got a lot of them. But it's difficult. And you can imagine somebody going in and hearing a song they've heard all their life um, to a completely different... Uh, well, I mentioned Desolation Row. I loved it. But, it, it, you know, the piano was, was unconventional, shall we say. And yeah. very different from the album. And To Ramona in Glasgow, a, a song I absolutely love. And I love the melody of it. Well, it didn't seem to have the melody. No, not at all. In fact, I, I had seen, I knew it was probably going to be that as the second song. And when it started, I was like, is this it? Because his vocals seemed to be like four beats after they should have been. And, and I couldn't tell from the melody. It took me a while to catch on. But that's the thing that Dylan is always different. And if you know him from his albums, you're not going to recognize the older songs. You will recognize the newer ones, particularly the, the ones from Tempest and, and the more recent albums. He doesn't change those as much. But you, you won't recognize the old songs if you're not really careful. No, and I think for any creative artist, especially remember, we're talking about 32 years now of going out on the road every year uh, and playing... playing um, you and know. more than 50 years of... Performing. I was going to say, and then, then you stretch it all the way back. You know, he he, he might uh, he, he might want to change things. Interestingly, the first the, the Palladium Nights I saw, the second song was "Don't Think Twice," um, and, and I would say it was recognisable. But he was. I agree with your description of Two Ramona. Uh, I may even have been more forceful at the time, but <laughs> but he was doing that quite a few times, playing counter uh, and off the beat. So the, the first stormy weather at the Palladium, I, I didn't think worked at all. In fact, I was. I actually wondered what he was doing, a bit like somebody who maybe had two Ramona. Uh, I was wondering what he was doing. The second night, it seemed to get a little bit more like it. And then in Glasgow, I really liked it. So he's still working on things as he goes. When, when we yeah. say the set list and we say not changing, it's only by Dylan's standards. You know, it, right. I, I've gone to, obviously, like yourselves, I've gone to see many, many other musicians. And if you see them twice on a tour, you see the same show. Yeah, no, most bands, they play a set list. They could be recorded and, you know, just singing lip syncing and you wouldn't even notice for a lot of them yeah and what is the point of going what is the point of going to see a concert that sounds exactly like the album you might exactly and listen to the album but i've i've oh for decades i've heard people say i don't like concerts i don't like live albums because it doesn't sound like the music i'm familiar with you know imagine you go see pink floyd that's a good example i saw pink floyd do the wall in 1980 and obviously it's not the album because that is a very intricate album with overdubs and, and all that but you're not going for that. You're going for the experience. But, you know, some people understand that. And, and people who go to a lot of concerts understand that. And, and I think it's the people who only occasionally go to concerts who don't get that and who are disappointed sometimes. Yeah, I think so. I, I, and um, I think Dylan's been very clear. You know, he, he said that the albums are mere blueprints for, for the live shows. And uh, it, it's very theatrical. I know we have a shared interest in Shakespeare as well. And they, they, I, I thought the stage was very theatrically set up uh, this time. And there were, there, a lot of that walking I was talking about was, was extremely theatrical. But the, the nature of going to see a live performance of, of any theatre, it's ephemeral. You go and see it and then it's gone. Uh, it's not like playing an album, watching it time after time. It's not like watching a film and, and then rewinding it and watching it again. It's there and it's gone in the moment. I think that's what Bob Dylan lives for. I think it's what he's always lived for. And it's what I live for as an audience member, so I'm very, perfectly happy with it. But I'm not, I'm not criticising those who are not used to it. I can understand somebody walking in who's you know, used to seeing um, different acts who don't approach live performance that way and thinking, what the heck's going on here? I want to hear Blonde on Blonde. But you're just not going to. Yeah. And, and if you think about it, for, for a while, Bob was doing, what, about 100 shows a year. It seems to be a little bit less in the past few years. It's around 80, I think. 
you would just be bored if you were doing the same thing night after night that many times a year. How many times he's played all along the watchtower and blowing in the wind and like her own. Exactly. It's too yeah. many times. I mean, not, not for me, but for him. You can, yeah, if you go onto Bob Dylan's website, bobdylan.com, link in the show notes, you can look up each song and you can see how many times they were played. And you'll see some of them he's played a couple of thousand times and some, you know, a few times only. So a lot of people don't like in the past couple of tours, these what we're calling the Sinatra songs. Personally, I think this is where Bob is shining in these tours. Those half dozen songs that he did, you can tell that he's he's living something totally different. I thought Stormy Weather was wonderful. I thought that old Black Magic was one of the best songs in the show. The band had the rhythm and he had the vocal inflections. I I, I know that a lot of Bob Dylan fans wouldn't say this, but I would pay to hear him do a concert of just those songs. Oh, me too. I think in the I think in 2015 and this year, I, I I said Stormy Weather. It was it was just because of the way he was playing it. Actually, I think he I, he he was doing his walking around again, and I think he joined the mic at the wrong time. But rather than admit it, he just sang the whole. You know, he was off, and I think he just sang the whole song off because he wouldn't admit he joined at the wrong time. Uh, so I think that was all it was. Uh, by Glasgow, I loved it, and that old magic was great. No, I I think in the last two, uh, well, the last two years. For me, the standouts have been the covers, and I, I would definitely follow him around watching him do the covers. But I also think that's completely normal for any artist, but, but certainly for Bob, that the latest thing you've done is what you put yourself into. Sure. Um, you know, that, you, that's what's new for you. You're, you're, you're exploring the songs yourself. You're exploring the way you can put them across. I thought his voice was at his best on the covers in both of the last uh, two years. The sound was also better because it seemed to me that the sound had been balanced for the quieter songs like them. And the sound was perfect for those songs, and it was too loud for the louder songs. Which I do like. I kind of lost the opening of it most nights because after Melancholy Mood and songs like that, it, the sound just seemed to go a little bit, well, as you say, the sound, the sound just seemed to go off. I think it was balanced, and, it, and also he pulled out a different voice for them, which, which I think is quite important. But just to give you an example of a similar thing long ago, I, I saw him in 1993. I keep talking about shows I didn't like. People get the wrong idea. You know, I love this guy. <laughs> I followed him all my life. But in 1993 in Hammersmith in London, we had very, very long songs. So, you know, what, what, what was you know, a, a three-minute piece in 1965 became a seven-minute piece. Uh, I, I vaguely remember Tangled Up in Blue going on forever. But uh, Stuck Inside of Mobile seemed to last for eternity, apt enough for the title, I suppose. And Bob just seemed to be going through the motions night after. I saw him eight nights in a row, then I went to Holland and saw him three nights uh, there. Um, and it was he just seemed to be going through the motion most of the time, except in Holland he opened with covers that he hadn't played before, so he put something into those. But in Hammersmith he was singing Jim Jones, which was a cover album he'd done then, um, Good As I've Been To You, it was from that. And he really sang it as though it meant something to him, surrounded by all these classic songs of his own that he just seemed to me to be running through. So I, I think if you've just done something in the studio, for a, especially for somebody like Dylan, who sees them as blueprints for live, that's where you put your greatest effort. And I, I've loved the covers. I, I, know, I know I'll be very unpopular for saying this with many people, but really unpopular, in fact. Uh, I'll just switch my inbox off now. But, <laughs> but I've really loved the covers in the last two years. And I, I, would, love a, I would love a show of covers. I, I'd love that in a small, intimate venue you know, a, a theater with a thousand seats or something. So 30 years of the never ending tour, it's going to have to end sooner or later, isn't it? I hope not. I'm hoping I go first. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking the other day, there aren't many rock musicians that are as old as him that are performing as much as him. I think Mick Jagger's a few years younger and they don't perform anywhere near as much. 
he's pushing it at 76. As you say, it looks like he's stretching and, and arthritis is bothering him and all that. And I noticed that particularly in Cardiff in 2015, he was hobbling around when he moved. I wonder if maybe this is the last tour. Who knows? Well, I, I remember in 1989 in Wembley, somebody grabbing my shoulder as the last encore finished and said, just think that's probably the last time you'll ever see him. <laughs> so I, I've heard this a lot. And actually in my book, I mean, I'm not trying to sell the book here, but in my book, there are various points where it becomes a big rumor that it's going to end. Yeah. Uh, but you are right that, you know, Bob himself said it's a stupid name because nothing is never ending and it, and it will end one day. He also said in, in for a book that never came out some years back that he'd already decided when it was going to end. Now, that might just have been a passing thing. So every time he hits a landmark like 70 or 75, I panic, you know. Um, but, yeah, it is a little bit worrying. You know, he hasn't played guitar in a long time. This time there was no harmonica. He yeah. does, as you say, sometimes on stage look like he's in some discomfort, though that may be part of uh, yeah. the theatrical uh, element to it. Um, on the other hand, uh, I, I actually do know somebody who, who, who followed his car when he left one night and said he looked absolutely exhausted. But that's OK for me because he puts so much into the shows you would be. I mean, you know, he's, uh, as I say, he's, he's, if you're putting that amount of effort in and all the traveling and everything else that goes with it, you're going to be very tired. But he didn't look to me like he was planning on stopping anytime soon. So I'm holding out. I'm holding out. <laughs> well, maybe we'll invite you on the show next time Dylan comes to the UK and we get to see him again. Andrew Muir, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you. Take care. It is time now to present our next tracks. Surprisingly, you are not picking any Dylan for this episode, and I am. What is your next track? My next track this week is a playlist for the first time, I think. You and I, we both generally listen to albums, and, and our next tracks are generally albums that we've discovered or albums that we've rediscovered. But I've been listening to Apple Music a bit this week, and I came across a playlist called Erased Tapes Essentials. Now, Erased Tapes is a London-based record label, whose artists all have a certain type of music in common. It's semi-minimalist, ambient, electronic. There's this sort of, there's a tone that they all have that approaches classical music in some ways, approaches jazz, has improvisation. But I think this sort of ambient, minimalist atmosphere is probably the best way to describe it. Some of their best-known artists are Niels Fromm and Olafur Arnolds, who perform solo and perform together. They've also got a group called A Winged Victory for the Sullen. Great name, but their music doesn't sound as weird as the name. They've got Dawn of Midi, who was one of my next track selections some months ago. And they've even got Penguin Cafe, which is the sort of reboot of the Penguin Cafe Orchestra. After the band leader died in 1997, it was taken over by his son. I came across this playlist on Apple Music because I'd been listening to some Nils Fram and Olafur Arnolds, and I, and I like their music a lot. And the playlist is full of interesting tracks by various artists on the label. And it really is a way to discover a label. You know, I remember back in the late 70s and the early 80s, labels were really important. Like anything that came out on factory records, we knew that it had a factory record sound. Or there was the Belgian label, Les Disques du Crépuscule, which we knew had a certain sound. And I get that feeling here from this label, Erased Tapes. It, it has a sound that you usually don't hear. So I'll put a link in the show notes. If you do listen to Apple Music, you can check it out. If not, I guess if you look up Erased Tapes on Spotify or another streaming service, you'll be able to find it. What about you, Doug? I don't spend a lot of time listening to Bob Dylan. Shocker. I wouldn't characterize myself as a Dylan fan. 
Um, it's a job for me to listen to Bob Dylan. But it would be incredibly ignorant of me not to acknowledge his influence and impact on music over the past 50 years. And I do like Bob Dylan music, and I do have a favorite Bob Dylan album. It's Highway 61 Revisited. For years, I got by with Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits Volume 2, and that was fine. But when a remastered version of Highway 61 Revisited was released a few years ago, I ran across something on the web that had put together the progression of takes for the song Like a Rolling Stone. And it illustrated how drastically Dylan reworked the song from its initial sort of jangly conception to the pretty powerful final version. And it was a fascinating look at how Dylan was thinking, how some of the session guys were providing ideas and how it all clicked when they, they got the, the right cadence and the right timing. Really very interesting. So that is what got me appreciating Dylan a little bit more, hearing how he worked, at least on this album. Bob Dylan, Highway 61 Revisited is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.